0: When you think of the journey that a general counsel took to their role, it's probably pretty predictable. They went to law school, passed the bar, and served in a variety of legal roles, likely some corporate ones. Same for a CFO, a CIO, or a CTO. But because of how dynamic the role of the CCO is, I've always been fascinated by how many different paths one can take to get there. Some were journalists, some have a comms background, and some don't. And some of the best CCOs I know found their way through a few different fields before arriving in the C-suite. One of those CCOs is Brian Lott, the CCO at Mubadala Investment Company in the UAE. Brian is the current chair of Page. And earlier this year, he traveled to Tampa to meet with the Page team. He told us about his career journey, and I found that it revealed so much about the uniquely brilliant leader he's become. So in this episode, we'll hear Brian's story in his own words, as he traveled from a small town in Iowa to a global role in the Middle East. I'm Elliot Mizrahi, and this is The New CCO.
1: Yeah, my first job was actually a, as a newspaper delivery boy. And the newspaper truck would drop a big stack of of newspapers, all bundled together with a string. And so you, as, a, as a delivery person, you had to go out, uh, cut the string, and then fold each of the newspapers tri-fold, put a rubber band around it, and then put it into a burlap bag that sat on the front of your bicycle. So I would do that every morning, and then I'd go on my route of around 9 or 10 blocks around the neighborhood and and uh, work on my my throwing arm to make sure that the newspapers landed on the front porch. But you know, in the process of doing that every day, you're handling newspapers and you're reading them and you're reading the stories— there's only one newspaper in Springfield, which is the Springfield State Journal Register, a newspaper that dates back actually to Lincoln's time, and you know I just got interested in the the nature of journalism and what it was all about. And later, when I played high school sports, I played tennis. There was a uh, sports journalist, a guy named Dick Goss, who just recently retired a couple of years ago uh, in Chicago. He was in Springfield, and he would come and cover the high school sports and and the high schools that played each other and I got so interested in reading him and reading his coverage of what we did that in high school during a kind of what do you think you want to do in the future day I invited him to come in and talk about what a journalist does how a journalist gathers information and, and formulates a story how they work on deadline and I really just got intrigued with uh, his career and just the idea of working in a newsroom and covering events so If I look back, I think that actually had a lot to do with uh, my interest in in writing and journalism in general.
0: Brian's early interest in journalism soon blossomed into a love of the greats.
1: You know, Hemingway's a a fellow journalist and a fellow Illinoisan as a novelist. And I started reading him in high school, was really interested in that style, that sort of clear communication and uh, concise. And, you know, that to me, just seemed like a really interesting thing to do from a career standpoint, really educating people about things they they're interested in reading about in the daily newspaper. But also, you know, it depends on kind of live drama and what you're covering. So that to me, I think piqued my interest in, in studying it more uh, in college. And I'm really glad I did. I mean, it taught me a lot about the discipline of writing and how to write well.
0: And so you, you took some of that uh, skill into college, where'd you go to school?
1: So I went to the University of Iowa and applied to the School of Journalism and Mass Communications and started really uh, studying journalism and they had a great uh, faculty. Iowa has a great journalism tradition, Des Moines Register, uh, Cedar Rapids Gazette, lots of uh, great newspapers, even the Iowa City Press Citizen, which is the local Iowa City paper where uh, University of Iowa is located. But I got to work for the Daily Iowan, which was the college newspaper and an excellent one. Um, and, you know, covered uh, City Hall, which is interesting in a, in a city like Iowa City. And, uh, you know, part of the challenge is, is making what can be uh, less dramatic uh, small town stories become more interesting and more relevant to people. And they had a pretty strong um, editorial bent as well as a college newspaper. And you really learn... A, how to be a, a good journalist to a certain audience, but how to write well, write on deadline, uh, and it functioned just like uh, just like you would expect a non-university newspaper to function. Uh, professional publisher, um, you know, back in the day, uh, everybody sub- got a subscription to the Daily Iowan, and it was ubiquitous, and ubiquitous on every corner. So it was a great uh, learning opportunity for me on uh, what it was like to be a journalist and uh, how to apply what I was learning in class to my daily work.
0: Do you remember what the first story was that carried your byline?
1: It was a uh, a funny story on uh, the park and shop subsidy. So the Iowa City City Council had passed something that was subsidizing downtown parking so people could actually park for free up to a certain amount of time, a couple hours, and dramatically the Iowa City city council decided to revoke that subsidy and uh, charge people, I forget a quarter or something, uh, an hour. Uh, There wasn't a lot of outrage around it, but it was something that the city council passed and codified over a fairly contentious vote. People were saying that it was going to discourage people from parking downtown. Um, So again, you know, the, the process of talking to the mayor, talking to the city council members and uh, consumers who would be affected uh, was interesting uh, for me to sort of get into the swing of what it was like to, to write a story. It was a great training ground for how to be a journalist for obviously bigger and, and slightly more important stories.
0: News journalism wasn't the only medium, I understand, that you were experimenting with in college. You, I understand you had a radio show as well.
1: Yeah, there was a radio show with uh, the university station, which was K-R-U-I. And you know the great thing about Iowa is that between the Iowa caucus uh, and um, just the the general attention to politics, uh, given given the state uh, being the first caucus in the nation in terms of the Democratic primary and the Republican primary uh, as a caucus state, you know you had a lot of people who paid a lot of attention a lot of attention to a relatively small state and population. So at any given time, you would have uh, political figures come to the state and speak and and go see people in their homes and go to city halls and such have town hall meetings so I got the opportunity to do that uh, frankly um, I wasn't great at it uh, I learned a lot on how to make it better how to make it tighter uh, how to use my voice in a more sophisticated way and it just gave me you know an opportunity to learn uh, I wasn't a broadcast specialist uh, but it you know that's the great thing about about being a student and being eager to learn is is you have all these opportunities to to see what works and see what's fun.
0: When you say use your voice in a more sophisticated way, what does that mean?
1: I always assumed that radio was about uh, content. And what I really learned about radio is that your voice is an instrument. And so the cadence of how you speak, the pace at which you speak, how you inflect to emphasize certain words And uh, in particular, if you have guests, how you give them time to respond and make the content compelling. I mean, that was all uh, theory until you actually have a show where you are able to apply it. And as I think back to those initial shows that I did, I I was fairly clueless about how all that worked and, and I wasn't very good at it. And I got to learn over time.
0: While radio might not have been Brian's calling, Shortly after graduating, his career took a different turn when he got his first opportunity—not as a journalist, as he expected, but in U.S. politics.
1: It was—I was so lucky. It was uh, Dick Durbin, who's now in the United States Senate. He's the senior senator from Illinois and the and the uh, the Democratic Whip in the Senate. Uh, he had just been elected a couple years uh, earlier. He was in a second term, and he represented Springfield, which was where I grew up. And for me. I mean, I, just, to, just to work in a congressional office was such a privilege and such an opportunity as a college graduate. And to hear people who would come in and, you know, there are people with problems that you can help solve. All those things uh, require you to really understand people, uh, to listen to their stories and figure out how to be the most helpful. And I just found that to be a kind of immediate, immersion into how government works and what public service is all about. And it's still, I think if you talk to a lot of elected officials, it's probably one of the most gratifying things that they do is really helping people out who don't know where to turn always. And that person-to-person problem solving is a pretty rewarding thing. Uh, So I started in the Illinois office and then eventually moved to Washington later that year.
0: And what was that introduction to D.C. and and the federal government, what, what, what kind of an impression did that make on you coming from a small town?
1: Well, Springfield was a state capital, right? So I had some sense of what that legislative uh, life was like, but nothing like Washington, D.C., where you have the entirety of the federal government largely based there. My first trip to Capitol Hill, when you see the Capitol, you see the Supreme Court across the street, uh, you realize that members of Congress don't uh, work in the Capitol building. They go vote in the Capitol building and they have their own offices, the Senate on one side and on the house on the other. And that you work in these kind of small, um, offices that are meant to facilitate or by, uh, nature of their size require you to work collaboratively with a bunch of other people to, to solve problems during the day. Uh, and it, it, you know, I spent 15 years there and I never lost that sense of uh, awe, if you call it that, and that, that uh, responsibility uh, and honor of being, you know, just one, but, but a really uh, proud uh, staff person for someone who's been trusted by the voters to go fulfill the will of the people and vote their conscience on, on issues great and small. You have very important people coming to your office every day so you get to interact with policymakers and cabinet secretaries and such, uh, and you're really helping this individual decipher and uh, decide uh, what votes uh, they're, they're looking to cast in, in, in many ways, some of which may define their career.
0: When asked what he was most proud of working on during that time, Brian told the story of witnessing firsthand how the tobacco lobby was defeated by public opinion and the impact that had on him
1: one of the issues that he tackled or started to, to get serious about was uh, this issue of uh, smoking on airplanes. Imagine back in the day that there was a smoking section, a non-smoking section. And at some point, the, the health issues around smoking just became obvious. Um, but the the tobacco lobby was, was very powerful in Capitol Hill, and uh, particularly with members of uh, of committees that had the power to either uh, stop or advance uh, smoking restrictions. But he made the bold decision, uh, along with a larger group of advocates, to really take on the tobacco lobby in in uh, 1987 and passed uh, legislation that really put the first restrictions on smoking on airplanes. And uh, that was largely... Uh, backed by a large group of anti-smoking health advocates, but also uh, the the workers on the airplanes who were subject to tobacco smoke um, as part of their job, right? Flight attendants and pilots and such. So that passed by a very slim margin. It was really an effort uh, by, by the whole team to um, try and uh, make a media argument that this, as much as it was... Um, A tobacco-related issue It wasn't meant to be necessarily against the agricultural crop. It was meant to be a public health issue for people who were subjected to secondhand smoke. This warning light will now stay on permanently on virtually all 17,000 domestic flights a day in the United States. Only the handful of flights lasting more than six hours will allow cigarette smoking... And that to me, I I think, was was the first... Evidence that a that a very powerful organization like the Tobacco Institute and the, their allies on Capitol Hill could actually uh, encounter uh, a wave of public health and be defeated. The tobacco industry insists that the ban is unnecessary and discriminatory. And today, some smoking passengers were fuming. Ultimately, it did set the stage for Durbin's career, and uh, you know it, it was a fairly remarkable thing to be a witness to. It was that was really fun. That was probably the biggest initiative. With Durban. Uh, the 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 most prominent issue, I would say, uh, with Congressman Jerry Costello, who I worked for after Durban as his chief of staff and, and chief spokesperson, was uh, during the first uh, Gulf War. Just two
0: hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq
1: and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. Uh, Costello's son. Uh, Jerry Jr., who uh, had just joined the military uh, at a time when the U.S. was relatively uninvolved in military engagements uh, around the world, uh, got called up to fight uh, in the invasion uh, to push the Iraqis out of Kuwait after uh, Saddam Hussein had invaded uh, Kuwait.
0: Tonight, the battle has
1: been joined. So there was enormous media attention around his role as a legislator who had to vote uh, on whether to authorize the use of force uh, to to uh, remove Saddam from Kuwait and his son on the front lines in Basra, and uh, you know just just being mindful of uh, all of the the potential uh, challenges and. Um, Stories that had to be told around what it's like for a parent who's who's voting to authorize or not the use of force. He he ultimately voted against it for lots of reasons. Uh, but it was a, it was an interesting time in his life, and uh, thankfully his son uh, came home uh, safe um, and is a, is a, uh, a recognition. Uh, sorry, recognized elected official in Illinois of his own right. Uh, but that was a that was a fascinating start for me as a newly minted staffer on the Hill to try and help him navigate uh, when 60 Minutes and others were in our office trying to get an interview with him.
0: What changed either in you or in politics uh, that caused you to think about changing direction?
1: So, when you work on Capitol Hill, you get to know Washington DC really well and you get to know your home district quite well or your home state if you work on the Senate side. But I had this just desire to work internationally. Um, so I started thinking about what the right opportunity could be. I had some colleagues who'd worked in the public relations industry for uh, agencies, uh, one of whom worked for Burson-Marsteller, which to me uh, was probably the most global at that time of any public relations agencies and, and met them and and eventually moved to to Burson in, in 2000, uh, ultimately with the goal ideally uh, uh, to find a client uh, that was based outside of the U.S. and move, and that's exactly what happened.
0: Who was the client, and, and where'd you go?
1: SAP was the client, and Herbert Heitman was the uh, was the head of communications at SAP, a uh, distinguished distinguished page member uh, and good friend. And he had hired Burson really to kind of map his communications function around the world and support his team in uh, in dozens of markets. And so I moved to. Uh, to Germany, worked out of the Burson-Frankfurt office, and supported uh, Herbert and his team um, under the leadership of our global client lead, who was all over the world, uh, and, and she could at least know that I was there uh, to help Herbert in the same time zone and, and the same geography. So, you know, part of the fascinating opportunity for me was to travel around Europe to all the countries where we had a Burson-SAP relationship and try and help facilitate that for the most value for the client. Uh, and that just, to me, uh, opened up a whole uh, understanding of what public relations means uh, to an in-house team, how agencies add value. Uh, obviously, the the most incredible opportunity was Harold Burson was still alive and very active. He came over quite a bit to meet with the SAP CEO and executive team and Herbert himself. Uh, you never tired of hearing... Harold's stories of the times that he had spent in Germany during World War II, working for Armed Forces Network Radio, uh, covering uh, the Nuremberg trials. So, you know, just the opportunity to drive Harold down to the SAP headquarters and and that hour and a half each way and what I learned was just uh, uh, unforgettable. And so that was a special experience in more ways than one.
0: Is there a memory of Harold that sticks out for you or a lesson that he imparted that's served you particularly well?
1: Yeah. He always had two great sayings. Uh, One was uh, to be in the know. That was a heraldism I never forgot, which just generally meant no matter who you're with, if you don't necessarily know their industry or know their product, know enough about them so that you can have a coherent conversation that eventually will segue to, you know, the the kind of principles of communication and public relations where you're on your more comfortable ground. You know, the second was uh, what, what, made the business model of public relations and and agencies uh, more understandable to me, which is uh, Harold's mantra was, you know, always be billable. Because if you're billable, that means that the client sees value in you and that the company sees value in you, because that's generally uh, how agencies make money, but also make their margin. And for me, coming from public service I'm I'll be honest the first six months at Burson I was completely clueless. I had no idea what uh, a salaried employee uh, coming into a, uh, in a business model where you charge people an hour's worth of your time I, I just couldn't get my head around that concept for so long. and so it really took me time to get client traction to really understand, how to translate how I had spent the first 15 years of my career into value for a client. What you write, how you communicate, how you present yourself, how you present their case, how you reach out to media. And then once I got it, it all made sense. But those first six months were very difficult for me until I sort of got it. And I think, you know, Harold as always was was a master at breaking the complex down to some simple concept that would help you get it. And I finally got it. It's it's when you make that client connection, when you understand what they're looking for, and you're able to provide it. That's the the harmony and the chemistry that good agencies provide to clients. And and I've never forgotten that. So I stayed with Burson Frankfurt till uh, for about two and a half years until uh, early 2004, and then came back to the U.S. Eventually uh, relocated to San Francisco, uh, where I was the global client leader uh, for sap Um, sap had a a very large operation in san francisco they uh, sorry silicon valley they still do and stayed with them until uh, 2009 when i came to abu dhabi
0: a new role had opened up for brian a new opportunity on a new continent again a former colleague on the sap account actually connected with him for an in-house communications role at a mubadala subsidiary
1: Uh, i eventually moved to Abu Dhabi in, in 2009 and started working for a subsidiary of Mubadala, uh, and then, uh, succeeded Kate in, uh, early 2012. And it was, you know, for me, a great experience. I was interested in the region. Uh, I didn't know it very well. Uh, again, kind of like that, that first impulse I had when I left the Hill, I was really, um, interested in trying something new internationally and the opportunity to work in a region that, uh, that, was challenging and interesting and kind of a new horizon just seemed too attractive to pass up. So I came over and, uh, was lucky enough to inherit an incredible team. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still amazed and, uh, privileged to be here 13 years later. It's been, it's been quite the journey.
0: What was the role that you took when you, when you, when you came to Abu Dhabi in the first
1: It was really to help set up what is now Global Foundries. Global Foundries is uh, one of the largest semiconductor manufacturing companies on earth, and Abu Dhabi had purchased the manufacturing capability uh, to make semiconductors uh, from AMD. And it was, uh, as an investor in AMD, Mubadala had the theory that by separating the manufacturing assets and turning it into its own company, you could add more value to AMD as a design semiconductor design company, and create an, an, an you know an entirely new uh, semiconductor manufacturing champion, which is exactly what has happened. Uh, so our challenge at the time was to uh, you know, create the company, brand the company, uh, work closely with the management team, which was headquartered in the U.S., uh, facilitate uh, a merger, uh, which was one of the first things I did with Chartered Semiconductor. Uh, which was owned by Tomasic out of Singapore, put those companies together. Uh, Global Foundries eventually acquired the IBM microelectronics business uh, and has grown to what it is today to the point where uh, it was able to go public uh, last year on NASDAQ and List. Um, and you know it coincided with two things. It, it coincided with the long-term vision uh, of Mobotola to create a semiconductor champion uh, at the at a, at a time when the world needs semiconductors. Nobody could have predicted uh, what has happened with COVID and everything else uh, in terms of semiconductor manufacturing need. But that technology wave that where semiconductors would be ubiquitous, they, they saw the, you know, the, the foresight back in 2009 for the original investment thesis is, has borne out. So my job was to, was, to, uh, was to build that team, help that company grow, turn into a story, Uh, and um, really help Global Foundries turn into the company it is today and and work with a a great group of people from both Global Foundries and Mubadala to make that happen. And that was just a fascinating start to the multiple sectors uh, that comprise Mubadala today.
0: How long ago were you appointed CCO and what prompted that uh, that promotion?
1: Yeah, we made the shift from what we called executive directors of communications, to CCO and the CCO designation happened in 2017. So five years ago, before that I had the role effectively of, of a CCO reporting to the CEO responsible for all communications. But I think as you, as you look at a company like Mubatala that that is more global in nature and you have communications responsibilities, commenting on behalf of the company, speaking to the media, obviously representing at conferences that CCO title just made sense. Uh, for a company like Mobile, it's become a term of art, uh, largely led through institutions like Page that have made it uh, more normal, uh, an, an executive reference. But I think it really reflects the, the work that uh, that my team uh, and I do on a daily basis in terms of shaping the company's reputation, uh, protecting the brand, expanding understanding of, of what Mobile is and, and who our shareholder is, and uh, just trying to apply all those great communications disciplines to help, uh, further, you know, what we do and the business that we're trying to build.
0: So you were in a, it sounds like you were in a CCO role before you had the CCO title. Correct. Is that right?
1: That's right. So it's been, uh, over 10 years in the CCO role, but the CCO title, uh, is five years old.
0: Do you remember what some of your first thoughts or concerns were when you First, assume the role even without the title it's a big step
1: it's a big step and it's a big uh, organization to understand so not unlike uh, doing client work for an agency the, the most important thing is to really uh, get into the business and understand the business um, you know again I'd worked in the public sector and I'd worked for an agency but I'd never worked for an investment firm per se and so really understanding the business uh, all the sectors involved and where we invest, and uh, the commercial nature of the entity was w- was kind of job one uh, from an intellectual standpoint. That from a management standpoint, I have, I have an incredible team, as I mentioned, that I inherited with with great talent. Uh, most of whom are Emirati, uh, who have understood the role of communications in terms of supporting the business and who have proven themselves world-class communicators.
0: I want to come back to the, to your path through Mubandala, but just, you know, it, it kind of strikes me that you've, everybody who finds their way into a CCO role, there's all these different routes to get there. And oftentimes the the, the people that excel in those roles took a more kind of a, a less traditional route, picked up different, you know, skills and capabilities along the way, different experiences, um, is there anything about the story that you've told so far that you think really led up to uh, your opportunity to excel as as you got to Abu Dhabi to Mubadala?
1: Yeah, I think the the I mean, I'm, I'm 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 hindsight is twenty twenty, so I'm very lucky uh, to look back and to say that these that that trajectory made sense. But I think the 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 one thing you do as a chief of staff uh, for a member of Congress. Is that you help synthesize lots of complicated information into something uh, relatively straightforward, so that uh, very important people can make decisions and make them in a really relatively uh, condensed time frame, right? You may have 18 votes uh, on uh, any particular voting day when Congress is in session. So, in the midst of that, you may have members of Congress who are taking meetings and who are uh, involved in discussions with cabinet members and phone calls, et cetera. So they may be running to a vote and and be asking, okay, remind me, what am I voting on and why is it important? Um, That's just the reality. And that's part of the responsibility of of a staff uh, person. That was great training for being a CCO because particularly in a 24-7 media environment, you've got busy executives that you're working with. He or she may have uh, enormous demands on their time. So being able to synthesize information into a relatively uh, compact summary that you can get your point across and get their feedback on numerous decisions throughout the day is really, is really helpful. I think the agency um, understanding of a client uh, deep into a particular sector, uh, really knowing the business decisions that they have to make was also essential. I think th- those two things really combined in a way, I never would have expected for an in-house role uh, that just that, that that continue to serve me. I mean, my boss is he's a CEO. He also has a, a numerous quasi-government roles in uh, supporting the the president of the country. Uh, ultimately, he's a businessman with with additional political responsibilities as as the CEO of a sovereign and, uh, fund would. Uh, but he wears multiple hats, and I, I just think that. Uh, I often find similarities between my first job uh, working in politics as opposed to uh, working in agency life and that I never would have expected that.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode of The New CCO, be sure to check out our latest episodes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear what you think so that we can keep making this podcast more interesting and valuable to you. To find out more about what's happening at PAGE, please visit us at PAGE.org. Special thanks to Rivet360, our podcast partner, without whose support we simply would not be able to bring this podcast to you. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on The New CCO.